what I've been thinking about today, specifically, is uh, I think something of a potential breakthrough in uh, understanding our fundamental theories of physics. That uh, we have something called the standard model, but its foundations are uh, kind of scandalous. We don't we don't know really how we have we have not known and. Uh, how to define an important part of it uh, mathematically rigorously and I think I've figured out how to do that and it's very pretty <laughs> so but uh, so I'm in the middle of calculations to, to, to check it out when we think about next steps in physics we have to diagnose what's wrong first of all and solving problems uh, tells us guides us into th into knowing what's wrong and what is not wrong. So <laughs> knowing, knowing that you can fix this problem is very important. It's also important because in thinking about future theories, we want to build on our understanding of existing theories and uh, exist the, the fact that there are th theories whose uh, status was kind of questionable. We don't know whether they're respectable or not, whether they really satisfy the properties that we want them to have or not, uh, was kind of limiting. Now, I think we'll be able to, to uh, assess them. And also, this uh, technique that I've been developing uh, not only shows that theories exist, but, uh, but opens up new kinds of ways of calculating their properties so that it gives us a bigger toolbox of uh, potential models to compare to uh, construct uh, world. It's a funny situation where uh, the theory has been uh, successful. This is the theory of electroweak or weak interactions has been successful when you calculate up to a certain approximation, but if you try to push it too far, it kind of falls apart. Uh, some people have thought that that's uh, an ins that that re will re would require fundamental changes in the theory, uh, and have tried to uh, modify the theory so as to remove uh, the apparent difficulty. I think what I've shown is that the difficulty is only a surface difficulty, that actually if you do the mathematics properly, organize it in a clever way, then the problem goes away. So, uh, so it falsifies people, it, it falsifies speculative theories that have been trying to cure a problem that actually doesn't exist. <laughs> well, it's things like a uh, certain kind of brain world models where people set up parallel universes where that parallel universe, its reason for being was to cancel off difficulties in our universe. Don't need it. <laughs> it's that, those kinds of speculations about uh, how uh, uh, the foundations might be really rotten, so you have to do something very radical. Uh, now, we still, it's still, of course, for legitimate to consider radical improvements, but but not to cure this particular problem. You want to do some, so, so it directs attention in other uh, orientations. So what's new in the universe? Yeah. Well, uh, 
the LHC just announced its result, preliminary results from run two, which is the, the first time we've had results at their new higher energy. Uh, the statistics are not uh, yet uh, sufficient to draw any firm conclusion, uh, but they have uh, they have a suggestive new phenomenon, a kind of heavier version of the Higgs particle, roughly, that if it holds up would be uh, very significant. It would mean that I, I mean a, probably a major expansion of the standard model, perhaps a whole new world of interactions. But at present, uh, it may very well go away. The statistical significance is unclear. Now, you, there are things like this happen very frequently in the sense that there are uh, uh, hints of new phenomena that don't stand up to further investigation. Uh, like, for instance, last March, there was this uh, B-modes, the gra supposed gravity waves from the early universe, which would have been enormously significant as evidence for inflation and uh, a window into extraordinarily high-energy physics and the first manifestation of quantum gravity we showed. But uh, uh, that went away. It turned out to be uh, what, what they were measuring was had a much more mundane explanation in terms of cosmic dust uh, scattering light and producing this, this effect. And, uh, I had occasion recently to uh, look at an old lecture by Sidney called Quantum Mechanics in Your Face, where uh, he explained uh, in great detail and beautifully uh, a profound test of quantum mechanics. It's a situation where you have uh, three spins or three polarized photons and measure certain of their properties and, and uh, a classical theory would always give one result plus one for this measurement, whereas the quantum mechanical theory gives minus one. So it couldn't be a more dramatic difference. Uh, now, the experiment is done and quantum mechanics wins. Uh, but Sidney uh, explained this in his inimitable style, and it really uh, brought tears to my eyes and brought back a whole flood of memories. But I, the reason I was listening, watching this is that uh, recently with uh, a brilliant student named Jordan Kotler, I've been working on uh, a variant of that kind of experiment where instead of looking at three photons at the same time, you look at one photon at three different times. So the, It turns out that uh, some of the properties that are most peculiar in quantum mechanics of entanglement between different particles can also be uh, a property of entangling histories of single particles. So uh, I love the whole notion of entangling histories where uh, different, different possibilities for how what things might have happened get uh, to interfere with each other and uh, the whole notion of what the past is gets kind of mixed up, gets the same kind of weirdness that uh, is characteristic of like uh, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen uh, effects and Bell paradox, all these things not only affect particles in different places but can affect things as they develop in time. Well, at some level, 
the richness, the, the idea that physical reality is much richer than what we perceive is, is something that everybody knows. Uh, we know nowadays that we see much more in whole new worlds when we use microscopes or telescopes than we see when we use the naked eye. Uh, uh, so there are, all, there are many ways we can enhance our perception of the world using different kinds of gadgets. We can slow down motion by taking rapid pictures and slowing it down. We can also, uh, nowadays, understand the micro world by calculating. We have a very precise and rigorous and successful theory of how the world works based on very different ideas than are encountered in everyday life. And we can present those ideas in visual form if we're creative, use, uh, use beta visualization techniques to bring these other worlds into human perception that was built to do something quite different. Uh, the particular thing that I got obsessed with recently is uh, the mismatch between our perception of the most important way we interfere in, uh, in, interact with the external world, that is our perception of light, our vision, and the underlying physical reality. Uh, we sample with our eyes uh, only a very, very narrow range of the electromagnetic spectrum, basically one octave out of an infinite keyboard. <laughs> uh, that moreover is not just discrete notes, but a continuum. Uh, and uh, there, are, but we know, and we have a very uh, reliable, well-tested theory of what light is. It's electromagnetic radiation, so we can compare the reality of what light is to our perception of it. What we see is, as I said, a very narrow band of frequencies. Uh, but even within that narrow band, uh, we don't. We, we do a paltry kind of sampling. We, we sample three different averages of the intensities. This is called trichromatic vision. People who are colorblind, typically the most common kinds of colorblindness, they see only two uh, averages. The, uh, so there are many uh, forms of uh, electromagnetic radiation that are physically different that look the same to us. So there's information that we're missing. Uh, that has two dramatic consequences. First of all, it means that there's a lot of the world, even the visual world, even the world we think we know, uh, that is missing, that we're missing out on. And secondly, that uh, our ability to use that portal to convey information is relatively limited okay, by, by physically. There's, there's much more bandwidth intrinsic to the visible portal than, than we actually exploit. So uh, on the other hand, there are creatures that do a much better job. There's something called the mantis shrimp, which is the champion in the animal world. Uh, it's a very successful species of uh, underwater 
animal, shrimp-like animal, that uh, exists in uh, hundreds of varieties, but all of them have this feature that instead of seeing three averages in the uh, uh, in the spectrum, they see a dozen up to, or six up to sixteen, depending on the variety, and they also see. Uh, down to the ultraviolet, they see some infrared, so they, they have a much richer uh, portal into color information than we do. Now, uh, it occurred to me, uh, and I think this may be one of the best ideas I ever had, that uh, we can restore some of that information using modern technology and modern ideas about how information can be conveyed uh, namely by uh, encoding the missing information, different aspects of the in missing information, as time-dependent modulation of the channels we have. So open new channels by uh, modulating in uh, ways that are recognizable and that keep the image, uh, the channels we have. So uh, we can start to perhaps see like mantis shrimp uh, that will both enrich our perception of the external world and also open up new possibilities for visualization. Like in quantum mechanics, uh, we learn that the wave functions, the primary description of reality, live in high dimensional spaces. So like, uh, if you have the wave function for two particles, it lives in a six dimensional space. That's very hard to visualize. I think chemists could find it very useful if they were able to get a better visualization of things like that. Or people dealing with complex data sets that depend on many factors. Those naturally live in many dimensional spaces and it would be very useful to be able to visualize those. And so opening up extra channels, extra dimensions of color perception, I think uh, could be a very good thing. And I've been working on gadgets and tricks software and hardware to implement that. It's been really fun. It's kind of a new, a new direction for me. Uh, I've always, and my father was a kind of engineer, and I've always had in the back of my mind that I'd love to do something useful. <laughs> and now, now, and so finally I had an idea that plausibly could be useful, so I've, uh, I've been going for it. Yeah, well, well, there are many practical applications of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the information that's uh, uh, in uh, colors that we don't see, so to speak, or more precisely, we take three averages, but you can, you can have a more fine-grained picture uh, if you uh, separate the different frequencies and, and, uh, and uh, have more channels of, inf of, of information. So, uh, for instance, one very practical thing that people use this kind of information for is uh, sorting fruit, <laughs> fruit that's old and not ripe anymore, not not uh, good anymore, starting to go bad, uh, starts to show different uh, characteristics at very specific, and depending on the fruit and the, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, shows different characteristics that are difficult to see with the resources that our eyes give us naturally. But if you look at these extra pieces of information, uh, it stands right out. So 
butterflies for I mean just another thing that's I don't know if you call it practical but uh, it's kind of cool is that uh, many insects and butterflies see four or five dimensions and many flowers that want to make a good impression on butterflies or insects have displays in those extra dimensions they have extra structure in the ultraviolet or extra structure that's attuned to the uh, particular capabilities of the insects that they want to attract that we don't see but we can enhance our perception to see what they look like and see extra patterns so gardens would look prettier rainbows would look prettier different aspects of art objects could, could leap out so I, I think it's, uh, it's, it could be great fun the, the, the fact is we don't know exactly what the mantis shrimps do with this information and uh, that's a very active subject in, uh, in biophysics just, it's such a strange phenomenon that, and striking that these uh, uh, very uh, capable in their, in their own environment and successful uh, species uh, have but, but they're not that extraordinary uh, that, that uh, they're not super, super creatures they're not superhuman certainly uh, what do they do with this information and I, I think uh, the most plausible uh, idea is that pri- what they primarily use this information for is to uh, make displays, make sexual displays to show their fitness to, and to, to communicate with other mantis shrimps. I mean, part of it, part of the evidence for that is you just look at these mantis shrimps and they're, they look extremely colorful, even to us. So you can only imagine what they look like to each other. Now, mantis shrimps have very small brains, so they don't do the kind of sophisticated processing, processing of the visual scene that we do. Uh, they don't uh, have as high a spatial resolution either, so they see more colors, but but more fuzzier picture. Uh, so I would I conjecture, and I think the evidence is is uh, consistent with this that a way of thinking about their experience as compared to ours is that we have a very fine-grained picture of a three-dimensional space of color. They have a much coarser view of a 12-dimensional space. So we see lots of discrete points, so to speak. When you see on a a computer display millions of different colors, we can distinguish millions of different colors, but it's it's really a three-dimensional. They're all points in a three-dimensional space they are all manufactured in the computer screen by just combining red, green, and blue uh, LEDs or whatever it is, the light sources, uh, in different proportions. So millions of colors are really three colors in different proportions. Uh, the mantis shrimp has 12 things that you can put in different proportions, but probably, uh, almost certainly, they can't resolve the uh, fine structure nearly as well. So that you can think of them as seeing big blobs in a high-dimensional space, whereas we see fine points in a low-dimensional space. That's what I say. This is the surprise that I'm thinking about different things is no surprise. I've, o- I've, I've always have had the style of thinking about something uh, 
trying to skim off the cream <laughs> and then moving on to something else. I, I return to things too. Well, I, I I look for opportunities. I, so I I obsess. I, I keep coming back to the subjects that I've uh, visited before if I don't feel that I've exhausted them. And this uh, thing that I mentioned before about uh, what I was thinking about this very day <laughs> and I'm very excited about is uh, the possibility is making the foundations of the standard model more secure. This has been, this problem that we're addressing uh, has been a sort of worm in the rose for decades that, that has been worrying people. Uh, and, you know, pe- lot, most people don't want to think about it. They think it's somehow going to resolve itself and it just looks very technical. Uh, and uh, But uh, it's been there. It's been kind of annoying. And those of us who really care about logical consistency it's it's extremely annoying uh so that's always been in the back of my mind but it's it's one thing to have something in the back of your mind it's another thing to have a good idea about it and so, uh, how, how is this i'm very interested i you know still interested in uh uh these possibilities for unusual quantum statistics act enions they're called which have uh since i introduced them have been a very fertile source of uh, uh, theoretical work, and uh, they're firmly embedded in theories that have a lot of other success, but uh, there's still no very direct evidence for the primary concept, and I keep coming back to that, thinking about how can we design experiments that will display this, uh, these phenomena that are Surely there, but 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 subtle. They're hard to find. Uh, so I've been. That leads me to think about new kinds of microscopy that are uh, intrinsically sensitive to quantum effects, to these uh, effects of entanglement. That's how I came to think about these uh, his, entangled histories. I look for opportunities, and and I just I always uh, I've always been I like to learn things. So I, I've. Uh, no, I've, uh, yeah, although my research has mostly been in uh, rather abstract, uh, advanced quantum field theory and high energy physics and cosmology and uh, low temperature physics, that that uh, is kind of uh, uh, esoteric, if, if you like. But uh, uh, I've also. For many years, I've kept at uh, kept an interest and a very uh, lively interest in uh, artificial intelligence and what's going on in neurobiology and computer science. Uh, so the, uh, I almost started. Stu- I almost started. Uh, I almost became a professional in that when I was a student. I had, to, I had a choice. And, uh, if things had been slightly different, <laughs> I might have gone the other way. Uh, but, so. How should I say? The work that I wind up concentrating on is kind of the tip of the iceberg of what. No, well, what's happening in physics is uh, depends what you mean by physics. <laughs> uh, the uh, high energy physics and fundamental physics, and the sense of finding new interactions, has really been slow. I would say uh, for quite a while. I 
mean, the standard model has held up much better than any of us thought it would. It's been much more difficult to get beyond. Uh, the, LHC, uh, the LHC so far has just succeeded in verifying the standard model with unprecedented accuracy and kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's with the discovery of the Higgs particle. Uh, maybe something new will show up. I hope so. I think there are very logical and compelling extensions of the standard model based on low energy supersymmetry and unification that I've been very fond of. I pioneered 30 years ago, but the experiments so far have not caught up with that. Uh, there are beautiful ideas about uh, extending the standard model using something called axions that could very well be the dark matter. The dark matter. What is it? I think it's axions. I mean, I've thought that for a long, long time. It's a very attractive theory. Uh, and it only gets more attractive as time goes on, as sort of the competition dies off. The experiments to test this theory are very difficult, but some heroic people have taken it on themselves to try to do this. Leslie Rosenberg uh, has devoted his whole, is a very, very brilliant experimental physicist who has devoted his whole career for just 30 years now or more to uh, developing the technology that's needed to find axions. And I think he's getting very close. And there are other ideas about that are very clever, that are relatively new, but also I think have a plausible chance. So we're getting there. So dark matter is a kind of an unfortunate name, but uh, the phenomenon is the following: that uh, we have, uh, we think, very reliable laws for for the gravitational force based on general relativity, uh, which is a, a generalization of Newton's theory of gravity and it's famous Einstein. There are many tests of it nowadays. It's very successful. Very hard to modify in a consistent way. Uh, people have tried to modify it, but that direction doesn't seem very fruitful. Uh, however, if you apply the uh, laws of gravity to uh, the, the study of astronomy, you find a whole series of phenomena that uh, all point in the same direction that are anomalous. That is, uh, you look at the way things are moving, like how one galaxy moves around another, or how the stars at the edge of a galaxy move around the center, and you find that they're moving faster than they should be if the uh, forces they're uh, responding to are due to the matter we see uh, that they're moving around. So you can estimate the mass in stars and gas clouds and all the kinds of matter that we understand and uh, figure out how fast particles have to be moving or stars have to be moving around uh, that in order to stay in orbit. And you compare with observations and you find that things move, are moving faster. So uh, the explanation of that that stood the test of time is that there's another form of matter uh, that contributes a lot of extra mass, but it's a form of matter that resists uh, our telescopes, resists, doesn't emit cosmic rays, doesn't, uh, doesn't absorb light. It's very transparent, very 
inert as far as ordinary matter, including light, is concerned, and that's what's called the dark matter, this extra stuff. Uh, basically, every galaxy that's been studied has uh, turned out to have a dark matter halo around it, and in fact, it would be better to call the galaxy an impurity within this dark matter cloud that surrounds it, because the dark matter cloud, when you add it up, although it's more diffuse than the, uh, the visible matter, uh, when you add it all up, because it occupies a much bigger volume, it, uh, it weighs about six times as much. So it clumps, but not as much as ordinary matter. And ordinary matter, as far as galaxy formation is concerned, ordinary matter looks to be an impurity within the dark matter. So what is it? And uh, the first thing to say is that it may seem outlandish to introduce as a hypothesis that there's some new kind of matter just to solve this problem. It's kind of, wouldn't it be better to modify gravity or maybe something profound is, is happening, not just another new particle. And it's, that's still possible, but that has not turned out to be a fruitful uh, idea because no theory based on that has been mathematically consistent with observation. It's just very just hasn't worked. Uh, uh, and now that we understand fundamental interactions uh, pretty well within the standard, or at least uh, well very well as far as ordinary matter is concerned in the standard model and have profound principles of quantum mechanics and relativity. We think we know how things work. Uh, the possibility of a kinds of matter that interact very, very feebly with ordinary matter doesn't seem outlandish at all. It's, it, it's very easy for things like that to happen. In fact, we know of an example, neutrinos. Neutrinos interact very, very feebly with ordinary matter. Uh, it was very, very difficult to observe them at all. At one time, it was thought that they could be the dark matter. Uh, and if they had a slightly larger mass than they do, they would be the dark matter. But, but now we know enough about neutrinos to rule them out. Uh, but it could be some neutrino-like particle, uh, or it could be some other kind of particle that... Uh, doesn't have any of the standard fundamental interactions. We know uh, how to construct such consistent models that are even very attractive and solve problems uh, that would lead to uh, candidates for what this dark matter is. And to me, the most attractive of those ideas, uh, partly because I had a lot to do with inventing it, is, is something called axions. Uh, it's a long story why axions were introduced. Uh, let me give you a very short version of it. It's been, it's, it's very profound and, and uh, entertaining, I think, to, uh, to the people who, who are likely to listen to this. Uh, so it's been uh, a remarkable thing since the earliest days of modern physics, broadly considered since Newton's day, that the fundamental laws have had the character that if you run them backwards in time, uh, they don't change. Uh, 
So whereas if you look at a motion picture and run it backwards in time, it doesn't look like the natural world. If you took a picture of things that are really small, the micro world, and ran it backwards, it would be indistinguishable. The events would still satisfy the laws of physics and you would have a hard time telling which way was forwards and which way was backwards. So the fundamental laws have this very different character from uh, the uh, laws that, from the uh, world we ordinarily experience. Earlier we talked about this theme that uh, apparent, the appearance of reality is quite different, <laughs> our perception of reality is quite different from uh, deep reality, and this is a, one of the most outstanding examples. Uh, now, so the laws of physics had this property that uh, seemed totally gratuitous, unnecessary to describe the world, in fact kind of embarrassing, it makes a problem, it's called the famous problem called the arrow of time. How can it be that the fundamental laws look the same forwards and backwards in time, and yet the world doesn't? Interesting problem. But an equally interesting problem is why did the laws have that property? And uh, it was really only in the late 20th century that that problem got a reasonable answer. Uh, It turns out that that property, that the fundamental laws look the same to great accuracy, uh, forwards and backwards in time, is an accidental consequence of deeper principles. So uh, the principles of relativity, quantum mechanics, and uh, gauge symmetry, which is necessary to make those work together properly, uh, together greatly constrain the possible physical laws for the fundamental interactions. And when you take all those constraints into account, you find that the equations have to, the only things that are allowed uh, look almost the same forwards and backwards in time. Not quite, and in fact there are microphysical phenomena, very subtle ones that people got Nobel Prizes for observing, obscure particle decays that uh, don't look the same forwards and backwards in time, but for the most part, uh, for most purposes, the fundamental laws do look the same. So it was a great triumph to understand that puzzle. So the the so-called time reversal symmetry of physical laws is a consequence of other deep principles. So there are certain interactions that are allowed by the fundamental principles that do look different, run forwards and backwards in time. Uh, So there are, for instance, some uh, scattering processes where the the probability that they happen in one direction, say A plus B goes to C plus D, is different from the probability of C plus D goes to A plus B. That's the basic idea. So it's more complicated in detail, but that's the basic idea. There are very slight asymmetries in in, uh, certain reactions run backwards and forwards in time, but they're very obscure and very small uh, asymmetries. And uh, it was a great triumph to understand that. Uh, But... (laughs) And so this is a long, I'm sorry, it's a long shaggy dog story, but eventually does connect to the dark matter. The, uh, but 
this wonderful result uh, has a loophole. It turns out there is one kind of interaction that would give a rather large asymmetry between forwards and backwards in time, one fundamental interaction that, if it existed, would. Uh, it's not forbidden by any fundamental principles. And so the puzzle has been narrowed but not solved. We still have this one loophole. And uh, two physicists named uh, Helen Quinn and Roberto Pecce introduced a idea, a new a, a way of expanding the laws of physics, introducing more symmetry, uh, so a new profound principle in addition to relativity, quantum mechanics, and gate symmetry that would explain why uh, that interaction doesn't exist either. Uh, and uh, what I noticed, and they didn't notice, but I noticed and also Steve Weinberg noticed, is that uh, that kind of theoretical proposal leads to the existence of a new kind of particle, which is, has very remarkable properties. It's extremely light, extremely feebly interacting with matter, and it turns out that if you work out how it gets produced in the Big Bang, it gets produced with, in about the right amount to make the observed dark matter that astronomers want. So that's the axion. Uh, I named it after an, a laundry detergent. You know, this <laughs> when I was uh, when I was an adolescent. I mean, it wasn't very long after I was an adolescent that I, I did this. Uh, the uh, uh, there was a, a laundry detergent on the market called Axion. And I, th I thought, gee, that really sounds like a particle. But I learned that it, there was no such particle. But I, I said to myself, if I ever get the chance, I'm going to make such a particle. And so when it turned out that this particle uh, solved a, cleaned up, I said, cleans up a problem with an axial current. So I can call it the Axion. And uh, that that got through physical review letters and it became the name, which is now universally accepted. And that was, gosh, almost 40 years ago now. <laughs> well, first of all, I should say that I saved the world from the Higlet. Weinberg had been calling this thing the Higlet. <laughs> so when we uh, learned that we were both uh, uh, barking up the same tree and compared notes, uh, he very wisely and graciously uh, agreed <laughs> to use Axion, and that's that's become the the standard name. Uh, uh, but okay, so just in the Axion story itself, it wasn't at first obvious at all uh, th uh, that it's uh, that it, what its cosmology was, what its cosmological consequences were. It was not introduced consciously. To, to uh, provide dark matter. It just turned out that the theory did provide dark matter. So that's, that's pretty good, <laughs> I would say. Uh, pretty encouraging. Uh, so I, I, worked, I had a big role in working that out and uh, trying to think of experiments that, that would uh, observe the stuff. Uh, another just to continue the Axion story, uh, the, it turns out another thing that uh, I played with that's turned out to be very fruitful that's connected to axions is a remarkable thing in physics is that 
uh, the basic equations that we use to describe particle physics interactions uh, also turn out to describe uh, things on a very different scale, like superconductivity, behavior of matter at low temperatures, superfluidity, uh, various exotic quantum mechanical uh, uh, behaviors uh, are common to uh, the, the super-duper micro-world and the world of condensed of uh, materials, of low t- especially at low temperatures. Uh, and so that's, that's a connection that I've been exploring for years, but sort of has become now common, it's commonly appreciated, and it's become a very big deal. Uh, and axions in particular, uh, it turns out, uh, are closely connected to the hottest subjects in condensed matter physics, uh, something called topological insulators. Uh, I wrote a paper that was just for fun. I called two applications of, ele- of axion electrodynamics, where I wrote down the uh, behavior that you would get if you had an axion-like field, uh, which was an emergent consequence of... Uh, uh, condensed matter uh, behavior, and uh, by God, that's that's what's been discovered. There's, there's topological insulators obey the equations of axion electrodynamics. So that that was uh, that was like 25 years ago. <laughs> so every once in a while, something percolates up, <laughs> and uh, the, the big development that's kind of it's kind of like. Uh, if you ask what what causes an ice age, a very big development. What causes an ice age is that there's a little bit more snow every year than melts, <laughs> and so the ice accumulates. Uh, and uh, over time, you know, it's very dramatic. But year by year, you don't necessarily notice. Uh, I think the big big story of the 20th and the 21st century is that. We're learning to control the world better, right? and uh, with the development of quantum mechanics, we understand the fundamental principles of uh, how matter, what matter is, and how it behaves. Uh, for for uh, that's adequate for all engineering purposes, and so really the limitation is just our imagination and our. Uh, ability to calculate the consequences of the laws. And we're getting better at both of those. As we get experience, we have more imagination. Uh, and as computing develops, uh, we learn how to con- calculate the consequences of the laws better and better. And there's also a feedback cycle. When you can understand matter better, you can, un- you can design better computers, which enable you to calculate better. And it's this kind of ascending helix. Uh, so that, to me, is the big story. Uh, we understand things better and better and better, and that gives us more and more power over nature. Well, another, you know, a, another important and, and interesting and glamorous part of, of physics and a fundamental science is finding essentially new things. And uh, in, in physics, which I know best... I think uh, there are prospects 
from the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider. That's opening up new ground. We will soon have uh, gravitational wave detectors that are capable of uh, detecting gravitational waves. We will soon have axion detectors that will be capable of detecting axions. We will, uh, we will uh, have uh, perhaps uh, surprises coming from sensitive experiments uh, to detect rare events, rare decays, tiny asymmetries in the behavior of, of laws. So that there are lots of potential portals where we can we can have new phenomena that will change and enrich our understanding of fundamentals. Uh, of course, astronomy is another source. People that are developing techniques that are uh, way, uh, ways of orchestrating much larger masses of data than we could handle before, instruments that are more sensitive, and uh, people, as they've sort of also gotten a standard model of cosmology, have been able to ask more sophisticated questions, more profound questions about how it all began, and uh, maybe get some answers. There, there are easy targets <laughs> for this question of what theories will die that uh, are theories that have never had substantial uh, backing in the scientific community, uh, theories like creationism, uh, theories like uh, uh, denial of, of uh, global warming. Uh, I don't even know if that's a theory. It's, it's kind of just crankiness. Uh, okay, a field where there's lots of crap, <laughs> I think, is the, the whole field around consciousness. You know, where people have very woolly ideas about something they call consciousness. No one means exactly the same thing about what it is. And uh, the, uh, there's something called the hard problem, which says that consciousness can't be explained, and basically, or can't be. It's the, there's something about consciousness that can't be explained in terms of uh, physical substrate. Uh, I think those those ideas are doomed. And I think they're very superficial to begin with. It's a profound fact, and it's a wonderful fact, that the uh, fundamental understanding, and it's really only happened in the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, the fundamental understanding of the world became uh, very beautiful. I mean, that, that ideas of symmetry and... Uh, what I call exuberance, that you can get a lot more out than you put in, really only became characteristic, fully characteristic, and at, at the level they are now in the 20th century. didn't have to be that way. And not all the laws we know are beautiful either, <laughs> where there are a lot of loose ends. But what to me is quite remarkable is that there's a, the, the core of our understanding really is based on beautiful equations. Uh, the, uh, so one aspect of it is, one aspect of why the laws are beautiful uh, is certainly that if they weren't beautiful, we wouldn't have discovered them. Uh, in the case of the strong interactions, QCD, and the weak interactions in particular, uh, the phenomena are so difficult to study, you know, 
the high energy interactions at short distances, the basic things that the theory is about, uh, are very difficult to study directly. So you can't, in practice, follow the model that people like uh, Francis Bacon recommended and Newton, that you accumulate a lot of data, don't make hypotheses, you just summarize the data in, in theories and try to make a simple explanation. That's not practical uh, when the information is so difficult to acquire. The, the way we proceed now that's been remarkably successful is to guess beautiful equations, derive their, equa- derive their uh, consequences, and compare crucial consequences with reality. That's a different procedure. And uh, if we didn't have beauty as a guide to what the plausible equations are, uh, we would be lost. <laughs> we wouldn't find them. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's how axions also uh, arise. It's a, a looking for a way to make the standard model more beautiful, to clarify why certain interactions don't occur. Uh, if you want to explain something... What if in, in this very unfamiliar world where there isn't a lot of data, where everyday experience is not reliable, what have you got to go on other than aesthetic feeling for what, how things should fit together?